because uh, this is week three of this series called Invitation to the Feast. And so let me ask you a question as we begin today. Uh, can you remember uh, an event, uh, a moment in your past that really shaped you? It just had a huge impact on who you are as a person. And maybe it was a trip. You know, first uh, trip out west, skiing, snowboarding, you just got hooked. And it's like every winter since then, you just can't wait to get back into the mountains. Or maybe it was a different kind of trip, a summer camp, a mission trip when you were in high school where, where God just got a hold of your heart in a powerful way. And it's like your faith became yours, not just the faith uh, of your parents. I wonder if maybe uh, wedding day, you know, many of us would look back and go, yeah, that has shaped my life uh, ever since that moment. Uh, perhaps it was a class that you took in college, an internship that you had in college that, that you just realized in that experience, that experience, this is what I want to do. When I grow up, this is it. This is what I want to do. And that experience, that event kind of gave you direction career-wise for your life. But think about uh, an event that has shaped your life. Because as we talk about these festivals, these feasts that God gave his people Israel, I believe there was something about celebrating these three annual pilgrimage feasts that was meant to shape them. Now, uh, as we have talked about these uh, feasts throughout this series, uh, God called his people three times a year to kind of stop what they were doing, stop working, travel to Jerusalem, and essentially party and have a great time. And so let me just you know, share with you just a couple ways that uh, these festivals are described. Uh, we read this, and rejoice before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose as a dwelling for his name. It's like he commands them, hey, have fun. Have a good time at these festivals. Another verse a little later says, be joyful at your festival. It's like a command. Doggone it, you're going to have fun. Thou shalt party. It's kind of the sense I get out of this. And I love this. It's like God commanded his people to celebrate. In fact, a couple months ago, as our team was kind of getting together and planning out this series, I pitched an idea for a series title that I thought was awesome based on these couple passages. I'd like to show it to you. Uh, Party God. And you know, I, I just, I still don't understand why this was rejected by the creative team. Just missed opportunity here. To... Anyway, uh, God instituted these festivals for his people and they were meant to be fun. They were meant to be celebratory. But I think there was more to these things than just eat, drink, and be merry. There was something about these festivals where God gathers his, his people that he meant for these experiences to shape his people and form them and grow them and transform them into the, the people that he desired them to be. And I believe this is true, not just for the ancient Israelites, but for us, for you and for me. Because being a Christian, being a Jesus follower, it's not just believing some certain things. It's not just showing up for church on the weekends. It's not just having a couple Bibles on the shelf at home and knowing some things about the scriptures. Of course, these things are important and they're good. But beyond those things, what God desires to do is shape you. 
He wants to grow you and change you and transform you. He wants to shape you into the person that he desires that you be. And so I believe today could be an opportunity for, for God to speak to you about some area of your life that he desires to shape. And my hope and my prayer for you is that you would have an open heart to what God might want to say to you today. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the second of these three festivals. It's called the Festival of Pentecost, or sometimes it's called the Feast of Weeks, and we'll unpack why it has two different names. And as we talk about this specific festival, we're going to see four aspects of the festival that I believe were meant to shape God's people and I think have the power to shape us as well. So that's where we're going. Uh, we're going to be all over the Bible as we make connections for how this feast played out through the history of God's people. We're going to start our time in the book of Deuteronomy. And so the first aspect of this feast that we're going to look, lot, look at just has to do with uh, food. Because uh, if you've been with us in this series, you know that uh, each one of these feasts has an agricultural element to it. And so let's dive in. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 9. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks. Okay, so there's agriculture going on here. From the time that you put the sickle to the standing grain, and the grain that's being talked about here is the barley harvest. It was the first of Israel's grain harvest during a year. And if you remember from last week, Passover, the festival of Passover, celebrated the barley harvest. So agriculture is, of course, important. We also read that from that moment, from Passover, count off seven weeks and then celebrate the Feast of Weeks. So one of the reasons that this festival was called the Feast of Weeks because it had to do with that counting of weeks after the Passover. Now, I happen to know, because I'm a football fan, that uh, seven weeks times seven days equals 49. You see, that's my best math is, okay, seven touchdowns is 49 points. Okay, yes, 49. I, I know how to do that. So that's just a little glimpse into how my brain works. But uh, from Passover, you count 49 days and then the very next day, the 50th day, that's when you celebrate the Feast of Weeks, or sometimes it was called the Feast of Pentecost. Now, penta in Greek means 50th, and so that's where the name Pentecost comes from. It's the 50th day after Passover. That's when you celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And you're going, that's great, that's cool. Who cares? What's, what, I mean, where is this going? Okay. Food, agriculture, Passover celebrated the barley harvest. And when you are in ancient Israel, it's spring, you plant your crops, and the first one that springs up is the barley. And then 50 days later is when the wheat harvest would, be, uh, would come to uh, fruition, or you know, the crop was ready for harvest. So the, Paso or the Pentecost uh, feast was about the wheat harvest. And this was a very important harvest for God's people because if you put yourself back in their time, you, your family, your village, you plant your crops, the barley comes and you go, okay, 
We're going to have food for our family and for our village for a while. Because you need that wheat harvest if you're really going to survive and thrive. And so after the barley harvest, there's this waiting period. Seven weeks of waiting until the wheat comes. And I believe that this waiting period was kind of scary. That you were, there was some fear. There was some trepidation. Because if this harvest isn't good, you, your family village, you're in trouble. Now, I, I just don't think we really get this whole waiting for food, wait, waiting for agriculture thing, the way that they did. And the reason I think this is because this week uh, we bought strawberries at Meyer. In the dead of winter, we bought strawberries. Where did Meyer get the strawberries? I don't know. But they had them, and so we bought them. And we bought a lot of them. And I got the five kids, you know, they eat a lot of strawberries. We bought so many that potentially we're not going to be able to eat them all. But that's not a problem because then we just chop them up, put them in the freezer, we'll eat them whenever. Now, that, we don't get the waiting thing because in ancient Israel, okay, there's no mire. There's no fruit out of season. You're going to eat what grows right then. There's no, there's no fridge. There's no freezer. They didn't have any of that. They were entirely dependent on that year's harvest. And if it doesn't rain and the crops don't grow, you are in trouble. And so if you're an ancient Israelite, there's this waiting period after Passover until Pentecost where you're hoping, you're praying, you're a little nervous, and you're waiting. So that's them. What does that have to do with us? Well, let me ask you a question. What are you waiting for? Where do you need God to show up and provide for you? Where are you waiting Maybe there was an interview, first one was just on the phone, went well. So they gave you a second Zoom interview, and then a third in-person interview, and you know the things that they say, hey, we think you're a great candidate, we really like you, and then silence for a week. And you're waiting, and you want this job, you need this job, but you're waiting. Where are you waiting? Uh, question, when's the appropriate time to tell people that you're pregnant? Okay, this is not about me and Katie, just for clarity, okay. <laughs> Kid number six, that would be too much. Uh, I just need to sit down thinking about that. Uh, no, but when, when is the right time, the appropriate time to tell people that you're pregnant? Is it eight weeks? Is it 12 weeks? I mean, you get so excited, you, but you don't want to tell people too early. You don't want it to be awkward. When's the right time to tell people? You know, this is an entirely different question if you've ever experienced a miscarriage. Because that waiting period is not filled with anticipation and joy and excitement. It's also filled with fear and trepidation. And others of you would just be going eight weeks, 12 weeks. Yeah, try 24 months, 36 months, 48 months that we have been trying to have a baby. What are you waiting for? Single at 22, not that big a deal. Single at 32, okay. Single at 42. And you start to ask questions, is this, is this it? Is this my life? Will God provide for you? What are you waiting for? And the question is, what are you supposed to do in the waiting? 
the ancient Israelites, they're awaiting between Passover and Pentecost for the wheat harvest. What were they supposed to do in the waiting? I think they were supposed to trust God. I think that was part of the design of this whole thing is God was trying to shape them into a people of trust, people that trusted in his goodness, in his faithfulness, in his love for them. I think in the waiting, we're supposed to trust God. And how did Israel do with that? How did they do at trusting God in the waiting? Well, if you were to read through the Old Testament, you would see a bunch of examples of this God, Baal. You ever heard of him? Baal. And so here's a statue from a museum of, uh, of Baal. This was a shrine. Uh, now, Baal was one of the gods of the neighboring nations, like the local fertility god. He was known as the Lord of dew and rain. And the Israelites kept turning and worshiping Baal and offering sacrifices to Baal. Why would they do that? I think there were times where it's just like you look at that tribe over there or the neighboring people over there and they worship Baal and their harvest is really good and yours is not so great and you're just going, hey, maybe Baal can help us out. Maybe Baal can hook us up. And so time and time again, the Israelites turned away from God and turned to Baal. They weren't trusting God. They were putting their trust in something else. And so where are you tempted to do the same? What are you tempted to turn to in the waiting? In other words, what's your bail? For some of us, it's uh, control. When things feel out of control and there's something that you want and you're waiting for it, your reaction is to control everything and control everyone. Maybe you can't control that, but you can control this and this and this and that person. Maybe it's control. What do you turn to? Maybe it's some kind of escape. Because in the waiting, often there's a, these emotions that are not pleasant and they're not fun. And so... You want to escape, you want to numb, and so you turn to alcohol or some other substance. You turn to hours and hours of video games, so you just don't have to deal with it. Others of us, what do we turn to? Anger. Because you can get what you want if you blow up. So what's your bail? And I just wonder if in these moments, you might be hearing the voice of your God reminding you that he wants to shape you into a person of trust, reminding you that he is good, that he has been faithful in the past, that he loves you, that he is for you, an invitation to trust him. You see, there's something about these festivals that God gave Israel, in Pentecost in particular, not just a party, not just a good time. They were meant to shape his people. And I think they have something to say about shaping us because God desires to shape us into a people of trust in the waiting. And there's so much about this festival, I think, that is designed to shape us. I think it's supposed to make us into people of trust. I also think uh, this is a second aspect of this festival. There's something to do with the heart. There's something about these festivals, something about Pentecost in particular that's, that was meant to shape the hearts of God's people. 
So let's jump back in uh, to the book of Deuteronomy here. Verse 10 again. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. God gives you a strong harvest, then bring a, a big financial gift or a, a thank you offering for what God has done. And this is, a, this is a key component of all three of these festivals and Pentecost in particular. It, it's this gratitude piece. It's, it's thanksgiving. It's understanding where your stuff comes from. And of course, Pastor Jeff has done a great job of describing uh, this idea throughout this series. And so I want to focus on something else here. Uh, just reading ahead into the next verse, verse 11. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. He's talking about Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. You're going to go there and you're going to rejoice. And then we read, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your town, and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows living among you. See, the idea here is like, okay, gather up your family, gather up your, your household, gather up your village. Now travel together to Jerusalem where you're going to offer this Thanksgiving offering and where you're going to feast together, you're going to celebrate and you're going to dance together. And oh, by the way, before you leave, there's some other people you need to bring along in your caravan. God says, I need you to bring along the Levites. Those were Israelites who didn't have their own land. And so you talk about bringing a grain offering, a Thanksgiving offering. They didn't have any. And so bring them along and offer a sacrifice for them. And, and bring along the foreigners, probably best understood here as refugees. People who came from some other nation, fleeing war, fleeing famine, and now they live among you. They don't speak your language. They don't share your culture. They don't eat your food. They probably have a different religion. Yeah, invite them along. Bring them along in the caravan. Fatherless and the widows, the orphans and the widows, the, the people in society that are vulnerable. Because in that culture, they were not capable, most, in most cases, of providing for themselves. And God says to his people, gather up everybody and include those outsiders, pull them into your community, travel together to Jerusalem, celebrate with them, eat with them, dance with them, and celebrate the feast of Pentecost. Question, why was God asking his people to do this? I mean, it's kind of a big ask, isn't it? It's like, we don't have that many seats in the minivan. And you're having to buy more food to throw a feast for all these people. Why does God care about this so much? Why is he asking his people to do this? Reason is given in the very next Verse, verse 12, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Why does God want them to include these outsiders? He's saying to his people, Israel, look, you were outsiders and I brought you in. You were slaves and I rescued you and I made you sons and daughters. You were nobodies. And I made you somebody's by bringing you in. And so what I have done for you, I want you to do for them. He's shaping their hearts. All throughout the scriptures, you see God consistently moving toward 
outsiders and the vulnerable and the oppressed and calling them in to follow him and be his people. And so here you see God asking his people to reflect his heart. He's trying to shape them that their hearts might look like his. And so a question for us, who's God asking you to include? And who is God asking you to invite into community? And who's God asking you to share with? And I, I don't know what God is doing in your heart and who God is bringing to mind, but I can tell you what he's doing in my life. So I got this neighbor, his name's Ned. And uh, Ned and his wife, uh, they were refugees. They came to the United States uh, fleeing a war in their country. And so uh, now they live here, <clears throat> they live near us, and so we hang out, we've gotten to, <clears throat> excuse me, gotten to know them. Uh, we've shared some meals together. Uh, he, Ned has helped me with some projects at my house, and uh, they're, they're pretty hard to understand because of their accent, and they're always trying to feed me. I mean, very high level of hospitality in their culture, so if I go over to their house, it's always sit, eat, no, eat, I'm, no, I'm not hungry, eat. You know, it's like you're going to have one, two, maybe three meals. You're not getting out of there without eating. But anyway, uh, we've gotten to be friends uh, with Ned and his wife, and so the other day, Ned texted me, and he was asking for my help with something, okay? And so he asked me to come over to his house. So I go over, I walk in the door, he hands me a pen, a piece of paper, and his ID. And what he wants is for me to write a letter for him. And it's like an official government kind of letter that he needs to send in for his job. And uh, he wants me to do it because his English isn't great. And so I'm thinking, this is not good. I mean, I'm gonna mess this up. He's gonna get deported. It's not gonna be awesome. Anyway, so I'm gonna write this letter for him. So I, I look at his ID, the information on his ID, it needs to go in the letter so it's all legit, you know? And so I'm looking at his ID and I see his name. And it doesn't say Ned. And it's like longer, it's more complicated. There's, there's letters that go together that don't go together in the English language, you know? And I'm like, Ned, your name is not Ned. <laughs> Why did you tell me that your name is Ned? And he proceeds to tell me a story about how when they first came to the United States, how he was working construction and the guys that he was working with, they couldn't say his name. And so they just started calling him Ned. And people have been calling him Ned ever since. And on the one hand, I'm going, okay, that makes sense. <clears throat> and on the other hand, I'm thinking, what's it like to be a refugee? Well, first off, you're, you're fleeing your homeland, probably because of a war. You're, you're fleeing, your, you're, you're leaving your family, your house, your culture, your language, your food. And now you're moving to an entirely different place and you're trying to restart, probably with nothing. And you're never gonna sound normal there because of your accent. Your food's gonna be weird. And people don't call you by your real name because they can't say it. And what's that like to experience that? And I just realized in that moment, looking at that ID, I need to learn how to say this guy's name. I need to call him by the name that his parents gave him. I need to give him that dignity and that respect. And so his name isn't Ned, his name is Najad, I think. I'm trying to learn his name. And, and the deal here is um, 
I want to include him, and I want to invite him into community. I want to show him respect. Why? Because I was included, and I was invited in. God says to his people, you are slaves, and I rescued you. You were nobodies, and I made you somebodies. Listen, now what I have done for you, now you go do for them. And so this feast, I believe, was meant to shape his people, that their hearts might reflect his. And so I've got to ask you again, who is God asking you to invite? Who is God asking you to pull into your community to share with? Because his desire for you is that your heart would reflect his, and his heart is always for the outsider and the vulnerable and the lost. And Pentecost is about shaping us into the people that God desires us to be. And it's, it's about becoming people of trust. It's about becoming people who, whose heart reflects God's heart. And, and more than that, it's about our entire character. God desires to shape our character. And to talk about this, we need to get into this third aspect of this feast, um, the history behind the feast. Because uh, if you've been with us in this series, you know that each one of these uh, festivals has an agricultural element, but also uh, a historical event that is being remembered. So a uh, picture here that just shows you know, the three annual feasts. Uh, Passover, we talked about this last week. The agricultural element, the barley harvest. The historical moment, what was it? The exodus, that moment when God rescued his people out of slavery. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, it's coming up next week with Pastor Jeff. Uh, harvest, celebrating the end of summer harvest, uh, pomegranates, dates, olives. And the historical moment that's being remembered is that season in Israel's history where they're, history where they're wandering around in the wilderness living in tents, which were also known as tabernacles. Okay, now the Feast of Pentecost. The agricultural element is the wheat harvest, as we've already talked about. But what was the historical moment that's being remembered? Pentecost remembers when God gathered his people around Mount Sinai. This was that period when Moses was leading the people. Gathers them around Mount Sinai, and then God's presence comes down onto the mountain. This is a scene that's recorded for us in the book of Exodus, and, and the whole deal is like intense and scary. And so let's jump backward a couple books to the book of Exodus, this is chapter 19. We get a description of what this was like. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. I'm just saying if you and I had been there, we would have been scared. <laughs> this is an intense scene where God's very presence comes down to meet with the people. And two images I want to stick with you for later on. God comes down to the sound of a very loud trumpet blast. And the, the image is fire 
coming down. So a loud trumpet blast and fire. Hang on to that. God comes down to meet with his people at Sinai. Why? What's the significance? What happens? This is when God gives his people the gift of his law. Think Moses and the Ten Commandments. God comes down and he gives his people the law. This is how you are to live. The reason that God gave his people the law was to shape them into the people that he wanted them to be. Because at this point in Israel's history, when they're gathered around Mount Sinai, they've been ex-slaves for about a couple weeks. I mean, their sense of identity is much more wrapped, in, wrapped up in how many bricks you can make in a day than anything to do with the God of Israel. In fact, at this point in their history, they're way more familiar with the many gods of Egypt than they are with the God of Israel. And so God has some work to do to shape these people into the people he desires them to be. And so he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, and, and uh, the rest of the Torah is called in the Old Testament, the first five books of uh, the Old Testament. And he gives them commands like, uh, you need to rest. Sabbath, once a week, you need to take a break and rest. You're not brick machines, you're human beings. And why were they commanded to rest? Because God rested. What he's doing here is shaping them that their character might look like his character. And so he gives them a commandment. You shall not give false testimony. Don't lie in court. Why? Because God is honest. He always tells the truth. He's shaping their character to reflect his character. And God gives them a commandment. You shall not murder. Why? Because God values human life. Because every life is made in the image of God. And so young or old, black or white, rich or poor, born or unborn, every life has value because it's made in the image of God. And so God is shaping his people through his law to reflect his character. And Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost... It celebrates the, the wheat harvest, but it also remembers this historical moment where God came down, gave the law to shape his people. Now, how did Israel do? <laughs> Same question. How do they do with allowing his law to shape them and their character? Well, there were some moments that were good. And there were seasons of their history where they were faithful, but on the whole, they struggled, and they failed, and they chased after other gods, and they ignored God's commandments. Uh, there was a lot of corruption. There was not justice. Human life was not valued, and so eventually, God evicted his people from the land that he gave them, and they, they failed to allow God's law to shape them. But we get this glimpse of the future late in the Old Testament. God speaks through a prophet, a guy by the name of Jeremiah, who describes a time in the future when God, in a new and a fresh way, would use his law to shape his people. And I want you to see this because this is important. So this is the book of Jeremiah, verse, uh, chapter 31, verse 33. 
God says through his prophet, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God never loses this sight, loses sight of this idea of, of he's God, they're the people, they reflect him. He says, I'm gonna do something with my law. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write it on their hearts in a way that will shape them powerfully. And the question is, how is he going to do that? And what does that look like? And to answer that question, we got to jump into the fourth and the final aspect of this feast, and it's the Jesus aspect. Because again, every one of these feasts, agricultural element, every one of them celebrates a historical moment, and then every one of them is redefined and reshaped and completed by the person of Jesus. So last week, for example, Passover. God rescues his people out of slavery. That was what the Passover was all about. Jesus in the New Testament is presented as the Passover lamb. It's, it's fantastic how Jesus completes that festival. So how does Jesus redefine and complete the, the festival of Pentecost? And what does this have to do with God's promise of writing his law on the hearts of his people? Okay, so New Testament, time of Jesus. Uh, what happens, as you know, is that Jesus is uh, crucified by the Romans and by the, the religious elite. He is betrayed. He is executed on a Roman cross. And you may remember from last week when specifically that happened. It happened on Passover, right? And so that's that festival that 50 days later, it's Pentecost. And so we know from the gospel accounts that Jesus is executed on Passover, but God brings him back to life. He is resurrected. He appears to his disciples. He teaches them. And then he says something just before he ascends back to heaven. He says something to them that's very important. And so now I'm jumping all the way into the New Testament, the fifth book. It's called the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 1, we read this, Jesus giving his disciples instructions. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Don't, don't leave, wait, because my father is going to give you a gift. And I find it so interesting that in the space between Passover and how historically they would be waiting for seven weeks for God to provide the wheat harvest, Jesus instructs his disciples to wait because God is going to give them a gift. And so they're in Jerusalem and they're waiting. We jump ahead one uh, chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, okay, here we go, they were all together in one place. So now it's Pentecost. It's been 50 days and the disciples are all gathered together. And so imagine Jerusalem. Everybody's coming into the city, all these pilgrims, and hopefully they're bringing along the, the widows and the orphans and the foreigners, and they're there to make a sacrifice, and they're there to feast, and they're there to party. And God is about to do something incredible. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. A very loud sound, maybe like a trumpet. I'm just saying. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Again, on the day of Pentecost, 
when all of Israel was remembering that moment when God came down with a, a loud trumpet blast and in fire in his presence and gave the gift of his law. Here on this new Pentecost, it's like God is coming down once again. And then verse four, all of a sudden, or all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, coming down with a loud sound and in fire to indwell each of them with power. And go home and read the rest of Acts 2 because it's incredible what happens and God, how, how God uses his disciples to grow the church. And there's so much that we could say right now about the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit does and all the different ways that the Spirit moves. But I want to quarantine the conversation for the sake of time to talk about the relationship between the Spirit coming and this feast of Pentecost. Because what's happening here, I believe, is that God's promise through Jeremiah has come true through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because now the Spirit will write God's law on the hearts of his people. And let's just change out some words real quick. The word law, very uh, specific to the Old Testament uh, Israelites. Let's use the word word. Or scripture, because now we have the full revelation of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And so there's something about God giving his word to shape us, but then God giving his spirit to come down to write that word on our hearts so that God, through the word and through the spirit, might shape us powerfully into the people that he desires for us to be. And so again, God gave the Israelites these festivals to shape us, and God gives us his word and his spirit to shape us. Because to be a Christian, it's not just about believing some things. It's not just about showing up to church on the weekend. It's not just about having some Bibles on your shelf and knowing some things about the scriptures. These things are important. They're good but deeper than that, God desires to change you and grow you and shape you into the person that he desires for you to be. And I think one of the most powerful ways that he does this is through the gift of his word and the gift of his spirit moving within you. So what God did is he created space for the Israelites and a yearly schedule three times a year to stop, to pause, to celebrate, and to remember God's faithfulness so that he might shape them. And the question for us is, is there space in your schedule to pause, to invite the Spirit to move through his word that God might shape us? And of course, that's what we're doing right now. And that's why it's so important that we gather week after week after week to invite the Spirit to move. Speak to us. Reveal your truth of Scripture. Show us how you want to shape us. But also, I think it's so important for every single one of us daily to pause, open up the Scriptures, God's Word, and invite the Spirit to move. 
I believe this is the mechanism that God has given us to shape our lives. And so is there space in your life for that on a daily basis? I think it's foundational to following Jesus. And if there's not space or there was, but now there isn't, and you, and you don't have uh, something that you're doing there, let me just offer a tool. This is our daily devotional. It's called Beyond the Weekend. Our staff puts it together. It's based on the sermon. And so it's like uh, taking the sermon content into the week. You might say it's taking it beyond the weekend. I'm just saying. So, okay. Oh, I get it now. Yeah. I just, I just believe that we all need this uh, daily practice. And it doesn't have to be the beyond the weekend. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff out there. version has a bazillion devotionals. Something I'm doing this year is trying to read through the Bible in a year. But I believe you need something to allow God to shape you through the scriptures and through his word. Because we all have events, moments in our past that we would point to and say, that shaped me. That trip, that day, that experience shaped the person that I am. But I just believe that creating space weekly and daily to repeatedly invite the spirit in to speak to us through his word I believe that those moments repeated day after day have the power, the potential to be even more, way more influential than those little events that happened in our lives. And so this is what God is inviting us into. And so uh, as we wrap up, I would love to just pray for you. Can I pray for you uh, a moment? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your scriptures. It is uh, amazing to me how uh, the Old Testament connects with the New Testament, how these ancient festivals are fulfilled in Jesus, and how you just weaved all of this together through so many different uh, spaces and authors and times. God, it is incredible. And it just points to how incredible you are, how huge and wise and powerful and God, you are calling us to follow after you, and your desire is that we might reflect you. And so, God, would you shape us as individuals? Would you shape us as a church? God, would you help us to reflect you in our homes and in our workplaces and our schools this week? That's what we ask for, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Such a privilege to open the scriptures with you and look forward to seeing you next week. We'll see you next time.